Hello, friends, church members, um, or even relatives who are tuning in. This is completely new for me. Uh, my voice is going out um, in a sermon. It's going out to everyone I know on Facebook, and I'm not used to that. So i got to say a few things about what it means for me to call myself a follower of Jesus. And first, I know what might come to, to mind for you. Whatever comes to mind, it might just, just completely be a huge turnoff for you. You might have had bad experiences. Chances are you have with people who call themselves Christians. Uh, to be honest, I also have a knee-jerk reaction when someone says they're a believer in Jesus. It means so many different things, uh, and you just have to get to know the person. Uh, to be pers perfectly honest, for me, um, I want to make sure you know that when I call myself a follower of Jesus, it means that I'm no better than you. I am no more valuable than you, and Jesus does not love me more than he loves you. It doesn't mean that um, if you have not come to the same conclusion about God and this life and the next life, it doesn't mean that I don't want to hang out with you. It doesn't mean that uh, you have to clean up your act when you're around me, you know, and actually you don't need to apologize if you swear around me. That's okay. Um, and one thing just to be clear, because you might think that the Christian life is really boring. My life is no less adventurous than it was uh, when I did not decide to follow uh, Jesus with my life. So currently I live in Woodford, Vermont. I'm married to a lovely lady named Ren with a dog, a cat, six chickens, and I teach sixth graders at Mount Anthony Union Middle School in Bennington, something I never thought I'd be doing. I attend a small church called Valley Town in Wilmington, Vermont, and believe it or not, I actually get up and preach sometimes, which is also something I never thought I'd be doing. I decided that Jesus was the real deal after my freshman year in college. Nothing crazy happened. I wasn't feeling down or depressed. No one convinced me that God was real. I wasn't with anybody. I wasn't reading anything. There were no, uh, there was nothing written in the stars. It was just a thought and a feeling that I had. Of course, now I know that it was a miracle that God was performing a miracle of grace. That he would take a self-assured, pretty good, arguably, college athlete with lots of friends and confidence, tons of stuff going on, um, a lot of fulfillment, pretty happy. He convinced me, God convinced me to give everything up and follow him. And those who were friends of mine, and if you were one of those friends, you might be able to attest to this, you probably saw a complete loss of the Joe Carter that you knew at that time. I probably confused many of you, and if you stuck by my side at that time, I was probably very pushy with the whole Jesus thing. I changed in so many ways during that time, and I continue to change. And please hear that the changes that I was experiencing, not all of them were good. I had a lot to figure out, and I'm still figuring it out. And I'm sure you're still figuring this life out too. So today, in my sermon, I'm not going to be talking about how every piece of the puzzle, when I became, became a Christian, immediately fit together perfectly. I'm not going to be talking about the roses blooming in my life. And yeah, there are plenty of those. I'm not going to be talking about the mountaintop experiences I've had. I don't think that in our current situation in America, those are the kinds of things that we need to be thinking about or that are too real to people right now. 
I want to bring you to the valley in my life. My valley, I want to admit, okay, is not as deep as some of the valleys that you may have been in or are currently in. I haven't, no, spoiler alert, I have not found an elevator or an escalator or teleportion device to shoot you out of that valley. In this life, there are often no quick exits off the freeway of pain. But there is an all-inclusive feast of hope that I invite you to experience today. Not hope that your suffering is going to end tomorrow, or today, or next year. Although that would be awesome, right? But I hope in a God who is with you and me, and whose love will never grow dim for you no matter what. We're at a place in America where we might say, you know, New Hampshire slogan, give me liberty or give me death. No, live free or die. Um, uh, that was Sir Patrick Henry's quote, wasn't it? Um, well, I'm going to change that to, to say, give me work or give me death. Um, that's kind of where we're at right now in America. Millions of people have lost their jobs. We've had to wrestle with the risks of being, the risks of people um, dying for the economy to restart. And what a huge gray area. There seems to be no good solution. And in this crisis, many have lost carefully built up savings and people can't provide for their families. Someone I know who's worked, who's worked hard for longer than I've been alive is now facing bankruptcy. We're seeing just how fragile security is. And there are tragic stories in the news of beloved members dying of COVID-19. We're in a world that's groaning under the weight of suffering. The Bible offers hope but it is not for a second shy away from the pain and struggles of this world. In fact, Paul pens his letter around AD 57 to Christians in Rome when he acknowledges human struggles so deep that a person can't even find the words to express the pain or even dream up an escape. Maybe you've been there or maybe you're there right now. There are three parts that I want to focus on coming from the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 25. Romans chapter 8, verses 26 to 30. And finally, Romans chapter 8, verses 37 to 39. I'm not going to unpack every little verse like I kind of like to in a verse-by-verse -verse style where I give you the original Greek meanings of the words and wrestle with some of the challenging phrases will be great, but in this time, I think I need to limit our screen time and sort of unpack each section by theme with the focus on suffering and hope. To begin with, Romans 18, verses 18 to 25, where Paul has in a previous verse, just before this section, challenged Christians to suffer in the name of Jesus, for the name of Jesus. The verse picks up, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willing, but because of him who subjected it, in hope 
that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we eagerly wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So in this first section, I want to first look at all of the struggles listed here. I want to highlight a few words that Paul brings out here. Suffering, longing, futility, bondage, corruption, groaning, pains in childbirth, pains of childbirth, inward groaning, weakness. God is not interested in sugarcoating the telling of the human experience. He's not interested in putting on the Sunday best bow tie here. He brings us to our darkest moments of suffering and acknowledges the pain. Suffering touches the life of every character throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. There is no magical camp of Christians who have suddenly arrived at perfection and found the key to live their lives free of sickness, sorrow, loss, and pain, no matter what you see on television. In fact, Jesus promised that we'd experience suffering in our lives. During the Last Supper, when Jesus was about to give his life up on the for the up to crucifixion, his comforting last teaching to his disciples was for them to not be surprised when suffering came their way, but to take up hope because he, Jesus, wins the ultimate victory over the soul. He announces the trouble they will go through so they will have peace in their hearts amidst the storms. In John 16, verse 33, he says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have, you will have tribulation, troubles, right? But take heart, I have overcome the world. Furthermore, as Peter mentions in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Every believer deals with it. Every person in this world deals with suffering. And in our moments of suffering come the greatest lies from our enemy, the devil. I'm very happy with who I chose to marry. Ren knows how to meet me where I'm at, and she thrills my soul. I find myself with such a strong desire to make her happy. However, over the past years, we have wanted so badly to have children of our own, but have been unable to. We've gone through so much together, so much disappointment and sorrow and loss and if you've not gone through infertility yourself, you don't understand the gaping holes that form in the heart that cannot be filled. If you've never been through this, the answers that are probably popping in your head or the advice you'd say probably will do more harm than good. Although I've had a lot of 
great conversations with friends that have been really helpful in this time. But the challenge is when I look at couples who effortlessly get pregnant, I'm tempted to get jealous. I get to thinking that if I had what they had, then we'd truly be happy. I question God's provision in my life. I question that he's giving me his best. When couples get pregnant and abort the life they created for convenience, it's kind of a slap in the face. When drug addicts get pregnant and their babies come into this world with drug withdrawals, it makes me seriously question God. His power to do anything comes into question. And even his existence comes into question. I've had to face deep, deep searching and questions about God that I've never had to before because of this season of suffering that seemingly has no end date. But if my hope were in the temporary things like having children, I wouldn't be talking to you right now. If all my security came from the physical things around me, I'd be a mess. Yet, I hope, and my hope is not rooted at all in whether or not we'll have biological children. That does not get me up every morning. Paul wrestles, Paul writes his letter about suffering with a great tsunami of hope spilling over the darkness, overcoming in a great tidal wave of victory. And it's not because the troubles of this world suddenly end. The valve of suffering suddenly doesn't just get turned off. He didn't simply find a way to avoid all suffering. He didn't write his letter in a castle um, full of everything the heart could desire. Absolutely not. Let's look at this passage again. and Let's think about all the talk of hoping and longing here. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Riddled throughout this bleak picture is a repeating theme of a future hope and a present comfort. And God is at the center of it all. As Christians, we put our hope in the saving and redeeming power of Jesus Christ. We believe God will one day set nature completely free from bondage and corruption. And he will set each one of us free as well. We eagerly wait for this glorious future, but it does not happen just yet. And now I want to move on to the next passage, starting with verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what to pray, what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. 
For those he, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. And I'm going to skip ahead to verse 34. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Yet, and these are my words now, in this present struggle, these verses mean that we serve a God that will step in when we are weak and be our strength. These verses say that when we have no clue what to pray for, he will speak the words of truth and life through us. When there are no words for the pain, he will intercede for us in that pain and express it. And he's able to do that because he came to humanity 2,000 years ago, over 2,000, experienced all the temptations and testing we would ever face had friends leave him, and his greatest need was betrayed, was hated, mocked, physically abused, and tested in every way so that he might be our advocate, knowing the depths of the human experience so that he might meet us where we're at. He never scoffs at how we handle suffering. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 4, verses 14 to 16 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who was tempted in every way that we are yet was without sin. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Furthermore, when we make bad choices during our season of suffering, he is not suddenly hitting the red button and ejecting out of our lives in panic. As Timothy says in 2 Timothy 2.13, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Instead, he made us, he knit us together, he knows every hair on our heads, and he knows how much each situation hurts us specifically. He understands exactly how we feel, and he does not condemn us for our weaknesses. In fact, he knows how to make our greatest weaknesses become our strengths. When we are clothed in shame because of what we've done, he shows up to the party wearing even greater shame. Remember, he bore the shame and guilt of the entire world on the cross. And he doesn't ask us to go back into the closet and hide our shame. He brings our filthy rags out to the open and exchanges them for white robes. He doesn't ask us to change ourselves before we come to him. He wants us to come to him so that he can do the changing. When we are the, and when we are the rebellious child, he does not wait until we are near and somehow worthy of his love. He runs out to get us so wildly that it's embarrassing. And when we are lost, he doesn't wait until we find our way. He goes out into the thorns and thistles and weeds and climbs over our walls 
enters the storms of our lives and grabs hold of us so that we might be with him forever. That's the greatness of his glory. I'm going to turn next to Isaiah 61, verse 3. This verse is speaking of a future restoration of Israel, and I want to apply it to us today. To all who mourn in Israel, he will, he will give a crown of beauty for ashes, a joyous blessing instead of mourning, festive praise instead of despair. In their righteousness, they will be like great oaks that the Lord has planted for his own glory. And I found um, a commentary, the McLaren's Expositions, and I just want to read it. Um, I think it, this guy says it pretty well. And uh, make some comments on these verses. He says, there's a beautiful thing here. Um, and he's reading from a different version of the text. To give unto them a garland for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. There we have two contrasted pictures suggested. One of a mourner in gray, with gray ashes strewn upon his disheveled locks, and his spirit clothed in gloom like a black robe. And to him there comes one who with gentle hand smooths the ashes out of his hair, trains a garland round his brow, anoints his head with oil, and stripping off the trappings of woe, casts about him a bright robe fit for a guest at a festival. That is the miracle that Jesus Christ can do for everyone and is ready to do for us if we will let him. Let us look at this wonderful transformation and at the way by which it is affected. Now the last group of verses. Romans 8, 35-39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sleep. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. And this promise is that nothing in this world or any dominion will ever cool the fire of God's love for us. He has no off switch. His love runs at full power for us for the remainder of our lives and for the remainder of eternity. When we put our trust in his love, what a great conquering victory that is. We don't have to find the perfect love in this world we don't have to find the perfect identity in this world around us. We don't have to solve all of our problems. We don't need a magic wand to make everything in our lives go as it should. As long as we have Jesus, we live in, a greatest, in the greatest cosmic victory of all time. Now let me make one final comment on the verses that I've covered. Um... And I want to I want to highlight a verse. This is verse twenty eight, and this one's been misapplied by people. You just kind of pluck it out of context, 
and you can make it mean a lot of scary things, um, for especially when life doesn't work out. Verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Okay, so this means that he's active in all the events of our lives. But working things for good does not mean that he's the author of all things that happen in our lives. For example, he doesn't cause somebody to hurt us deeply, right? He doesn't give someone the idea to cheat on their spouse. He doesn't put the hurtful words in the mouth of a bully. He doesn't twist the mind of an abuser. But he is able in all circumstances to put in the heavy lifting in those moments and redeem them in the future. He's able to make that suffering not in vain. As some Christians take this verse to mean, oh, also some Christians take this verse to mean that because all things work for good, everything in life must have a happy ending. Working all things for good does not mean that when you lose your job during COVID-19 crisis, that in the future you will get a much better job and live your best life now. Working all good things for good does not mean that when a fiancé breaks off the engagement that there's a better person waiting just around the corner. It doesn't mean that you're going to beat your cancer. It doesn't mean that my wife and I will get pregnant after our years of struggle and many procedures. We're not guaranteed happy endings in this life. Instead, we trust that God's grander plan is to bring us one day to himself for his glory. All things work towards the end, work towards that end. And what, and what we need to agree on is that God can use all circumstances to form our character and to be more like himself for his glory. And yes, all things are filtered through his hand and he's in control. Um, but he doesn't necessarily bring about evil things, right? He's not the author of evil things. That would be the devil. Okay, one final personal note on what a life in a, re life in a relationship with Jesus looks like for me in hard times. Because I put my trust in Jesus, God is near to me. He's with me. He's with me when I'm feeling great. And he's with me when I doubt him and act selfishly and when I feel insecure. In my long seasons with this infertility battle I'm in, I want you to hear what it's like to spend time with God. When I take a breath when I'm sitting on my porch, when I pause in my bedroom and lift my heart to him, and when I lift my thoughts to him while I'm on a run, this is what I feel. That feeling of a dad who's pleased with his son, the way the sun feels on a cool day, a warm hug, a full heart. I feel a steady presence, a wave of comfort. It's like when Popeye eats, eats a can of spinach. I feel this readiness. My priorities get, get rearranged and realigned. A faithful friend is there. Someone who knows everything about me is there. There are no crazy fireworks, no mumbo-jumbo, hijinks, tremors, or shakes. There aren't any lightning bolts of anger. No judgment or condemnation, no guilt or shame. But there's equipping for a purpose. It's not just me and Jesus' time. He sends me out on a mission. 
because he loves you too much to want to keep you out. Again, these feelings don't just come when I'm on my A game and feeling lovable. They come when I'm feeling crummy. They come when I'm feeling that I've had a horrible day at work. They come when I'm in the midst of jealous feelings or in the midst of high stress and anxiety. And I want to invite you today to experience that. I've experienced it in my life. I was completely forever changed after my freshman year of college. And being in a relationship with Jesus has helped me face life's challenges. And yeah, I make mistakes. There's struggle for sure. Um, and I'm learning quite a bit each day. Um, but one thing that doesn't change is God. God is there for me each day. And then I want to invite you to be part of that. Um, so let's pray. Lord Jesus, we sit right now in your presence and we are in the midst of somebody that loves us deeply, that cares for us, that knows that what we're going through and has the power to help and redeem the situation. Lord Jesus, I, I pray that you would make yourself known to my, to my friends who don't know you, to my relatives that don't know you, to my family members. Um, I pray that you would make yourself known to um, anyone listening um, and to, to believers, God. I pray that you would um, help us all as, as we struggle um, in this life and we have those valleys. We thank you for the mountaintops and the roses, but help us, help us in this in this valley um, that many of us probably are finding ourselves in in this season. I thank you for your word and thank you for the hope that you provide. In your name, Jesus. Amen.